At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. everybody and welcome to Backstage Gaming, Dramatic Takes on Your Favorite Games. I'm Chris. And I'm Dylan. And we're here to do an episode that I think we've teased now for like three or four weeks in a row. Yeah. 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 But sometimes life be like that, you know. Sometimes you just can't do the things you want. But now we are going to do them. Uh, (laughs) We're going to be talking about the theater theorist and director and playwright... Bertolt Brecht. Yeah, woo. And how his ideas about media fit into the world of game narrative. Mm-hmm. And that sounds probably pretty heady, but I think it'll still be fun. Hey, Dylan, who the fuck is Bertolt Brecht? I'm glad you asked, Chris. You see, Bertolt Brecht was... I just completely butchered the German of that name. <laughs> uh <laughs> Yeah, but, I don't know that a German accent and a mid-Atlantic accent go together particularly well. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, Brecht was a uh, he was a German playwright in the 20th century, and he believed in this idea of epic theater, and it was heavily influenced by uh, Chinese forms of theater. So, so classical theater, or I guess theater as we have come to accept it today, is the actors and the performers are they are portraying an illusion and uh it is kind of a, a mutual agreement between the performers and the set designers and the audience that for however for the duration of the play they are going to accept whatever they see on stage as reality and yeah. the actors are going to try their best to portray characters portray characters as true to life as they can and you know that that is that is uh you know, I think that's, like, basic entertainment uh, convention. Yeah, anytime you hear people talk about, like, suspension of disbelief, that's kind of this this idea that, like, you know that what you're watching on stage or on TV or whatever isn't real, but you're willing to, like, allow yourself to believe that it is real for the sake of enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. And so Brecht kind of rejected that uh, that sentiment, that theater in particular, has to be an illusion. Um, And something that he admired about Chinese forms of theater is that, at least in the place that he saw, the the performers would almost be detached from the character. Something he talks about is uh, the alienation effect, Verfremdungseffekt, I think is how you pronounce it in German. I hope anyone out there who speaks German who's listening to this podcast can yell at me. Tweet using the hashtag BSGpod to know how, uh, let us know how bad our German is. Yeah, just, you know, please. I'm lonely. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, and basically what the alienation effect was is 
specifically as the actor is portraying it, the alienation effect is almost an acknowledgement of I am not this character I am portraying. I am recreating this event and I myself am examining this character as I am playing the character um, in the hopes that I might get the audience to examine my performance of the character and thus examine basically uh, I think I think Brecht wants you to be hypercritical about the events that are happening on stage in yeah. a way where like if you are kind of going along with the illusion you might not necessarily do um, in Chinese theater he he talks about this legend or this this character of myth uh, I think he only refers to her as the fisherman's wife but in uh she's a fisherman's wife who is rowing on a river and i think like the the river is under a heavy current and what the fisherman's wife is doing is like she will pantomime rowing but with a kind of mindfulness about it like to the audience playing it like is this how it would have been like is this how i should be rowing is this how this character would have rowed and by doing that it gets the audience to think about like what would that have been like yeah, Brecht was very interested in breaking down this idea of, like, theater having to be an illusion. And he was very interested also in, like, if we stop using the lights, for example, only mm -hmm. to create the most realistic lighting possible. Like, if, the, if we take away this assumption that, like, lights in a theater have to be used to create, to create a greater illusion of reality what then can we use them for if we if we take away the assumption that the set has to mimic reality what then can we do with sets to make them more interesting or to do more interesting narrative things with them uh brecht was writing kind of in the middle and at the tail end of this long period of theater being hyper realistic uh he was coming on the ta on the on the heels of people like Ibsen and Chekhov and uh, I think O'Neill. I think O'Neill was contemporary. I might be wrong about that. I, I know very little about O'Neill, so I can't help you with that. Eugene O'Neill was a little bit later than this, but he also fell into this camp of like, there was this general idea at this point in time of theater being very realistic. Uh, you heard hear people talk about like drawing room theater, where the idea is just like, this is just a fancy people's house. And we, you know, removed one of the walls so you can look in. And Brecht had no patience for this and really wanted to see, like, okay, no, we have all of these things. We have all of these, like, techniques and tools and technology that we are using to create close encapsulations of reality. What if we use them to do different things? What if we, instead of trying to fool the audience, we instead in invited the audience to, like, actively engage with this artifice? and think about it, and then take that thought out into the world. He didn't want theater to entertain, he wanted theater to, like, educate and to make people more aware of the things around them. Um, I think that this this school of thought came in part from, you know, uh, some, some political events that happened in Germany in the 20th century. I, I'm not really sure what those yeah, were. Yeah, you know, and then, you know, they fed on... The later political events in Germany in the 20th century fed on these ideas a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but but I, I think what Brecht uh, ultimately wanted was for people to not take things for granted. I, another example he uses in his writings 
is to make and to make someone question and like really look at their watch for the first time like you you glance at your watch for a very utilitarian purpose just to tell the time but brecht wanted you to consider the artistry of that watch to consider all the details that the watchmaker put into it the the even the idea that there is clockwork underneath the face of that watch that is allowing it to move yeah brecht is cool like honestly if any of this is interesting there's a lot of books and plays and articles and essays by Brecht that will do a better job of like actually discussing what he's about than we can in a five minute intro to a podcast episode yeah yeah this Um, is this is very much Brecht for beginners this is Brecht if you don't really study a lot of theater yeah um, yeah a pretty a pretty classic example just if if all of this has been a little too abstract the idea of a fourth wall break is Mm -hmm. kind of a Brechtian it's like that's like the most basic example of a Brechtian idea at play this idea of like acknowledging the audience directly and yeah sometimes that's done for laughs some things use it a little bit more thoughtfully to like underpin entire stories but that is a very Brechtian concept it's also worth noting and this is just something I want to bring up because it wouldn't be me I wouldn't be me if Mm -hmm. I didn't bring up some element of ancient Greek theater when we're talking about theater theory oh yes yes Uh, go ahead but Brecht was not the first person to, like, kind of plant the tongue in the cheek when looking at theatrical tools. Uh, in ancient Greece, in the in the Athenian theater, there were a couple of concepts and pieces of equipment that were used. Uh, if you've ever heard the phrase deus ex machina, that is a term that arises from Greek theater from the practice of, like, a lot of plays end with a god appearing. And, like, kind of being like, aha, I am a god, and now I'm going to tie up all these loose plot threads in a nice, neat little bow. Um, And the actor playing the god would actually be, like, lowered into view using a crane that was referred to as a machine. So deus ex machina, god from the machine, literally god lowered in by this crane to resolve the plot. Yeah. Um, There was also a piece of equipment called the ekeklema, which was a sort of cart that would be housed backstage, and they could use it to, like, they would wheel it out on stage to show tableaus of interior scenes. So, like, in the play Oedipus, when Oedipus runs in to find Yocasta has hung herself and all of this, they might have wheeled out this ekeklema with the actors, like, frozen in this pose of death to show what was being done, and then it would wheel back out. And so they had this kind of this theatrical artifice already, and there is a, a great example of using this in a kind of proto-Brechtian fashion where uh, there is a, a comedic playwright, one of the only classical comedians that we still have the works from, whose name is Aristophanes. And he wrote a play called Women at the Thesmophoria. And in it, at the end, it's a comedy. I I'm not going to go into the plot because it's convoluted because ancient comedies <laughs> are wild. Uh, but it resolves in a deus ex machina moment. But the god that is lowered in on the crane is an actor playing the role of Euripides, famed tragedian and co- frequent user of deus ex machina endings. <laughs> and so Aristophanes was using this theatrical 
conceit to draw the audience's attention to the fact that it's something that this guy who's now lowering in in the position of a god always did in his plays whoa that's meta it's very it's very meta (laughs) we live in a society we Um, live in a society but i just thought like i i was prepping for this episode and i remembered that and i was like huh holy shit bertolt brecht would have been proud (laughs) um (laughs) Uh, but we okay, are a thing, video game podcast. I was oh. about to say, last thing I was going to say about uh, the theater side of this podcast that is ostensibly about theater is um, the, the, the fact that uh, this Germanic form of theater is called epic theater is because, like the old Greek plays, it uses a lot of those techniques. Uh, it uses choruses. It uses playing out to the audience. So I just wanted to touch on that. That's, yeah. you know, Chris, you mentioning that actually is relevant. Huzzah! I did a good job. Um, it's almost like we planned this. Woo! Uh, we hafted. Now we're going to pivot into video games. And I think that it's before we get into like the examples of the games that do particularly interesting things with this, it's worth noting that like video games as a medium are kind of inherently Brechtian. Mm-hmm. Most games, like... There's not that attempt to hide the mechanics and hide the artifice away from the player in the way that there frequently is in film or in theater. You, as a player, are taking an active role in consuming a game. The mechanics are the things that you engage with. And so there's already kind of an inherent level to which Brecht's ideas of like making the artifice visible are there. You know that there are syst- inherent systems that you have to learn about and you have to be aware of and you have to observe and think about and examine in order to play these games in order to get the most out of them. But we're going to be kind of looking at some games that do more with that and bring that idea into the narrative and not just leave it at, like, that's how the mechanics work. Now let's play our story. Although I will say there there was one example that made me think of the alienation effect in video games without actually being about the interactive or, like, even consciously doing that that I wanted to mention real quick. Oh, please do. Um, so, and this is this is not a dig against any actors. It's just something funny that I think about. Um, but, Chris, you've been playing a lot of Fire Emblem, um, and I feel like uh, Persona also does this, where, like, you know, uh, it's a JRPG where there are text boxes and characters have these face portraits that give you an idea of what... Uh, at least whoever laid out the text boxes, the intent that that character has when they're saying a line. Uh, I find it interesting occasionally when the thing that the voice actor says, either in Japanese or English, and the face that is on the text box don't line up. Uh, or like, huh. you know, like the, the what they say lines up, but like the delivery doesn't quite line up. Like a character might have a shock expression, but the actor might have made a deliberate choice to read that a different way because you know they can't see the face portraits yeah those those portraits are not there for them to reference for each individual line in the script exactly like and you you can't record like that so again that's not a dig on anybody that's just a funny thing that i noticed but like it kind of gets me to think about like a the person's performance because like you know oh i didn't think to read that line that way that's like a really interesting read and it, it gets me to think about like that person and their interpretation of the character without this frame of reference that I have. Uh, yeah, and there, there, there's something inherent to games that have, you know, text along with voiceover that brings that up in a way that, like, I don't know, I there is sort of a, a and maybe this is 
my acting training kicking in when I'm playing something like Fire Emblem, where you know you've got the text scrolling across the screen, yeah, and you've also got the voiceover going. But that I I always like to kind of give the idea of like, how would I have read that line? Yeah, what yeah. would my what would my take have been? That I don't get when I'm playing, you know, something like God of War, even with subtitles on, where it's like a fully motion capped cutscene, for example. Yeah, it that is hiding the artifice away in a way that kind of goes against what we're talking about today. Whereas the voiceover dub over the text box is kind of inviting you to to take that extra step of examination. That's yeah. interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, like I, I was I was reading, you know, Brecht last night and I was like, you know what, that does happen to me yeah. when I play video <laughs> games. Cause like usually like a lot of like what Brecht writes about is so specific to theater that like we, we kind of have to futz with it a bit to make it work in a interactive medium. At least like I did when I was yeah. thinking about it. But like reading his notes on like how an actor should perform a character and thinking about like moments where that has happened in a performance unintentionally or otherwise <laughs> um you know it, it was it was a cool thing to think about and i wanted to bring it up yeah absolutely there's also uh i found this like the other day so i didn't have time to read any of it but i discovered that there is a book uh at a bookstore near me that i'm probably gonna have to pick up that is a collection of brecht's writings on uh radio and television okay <laughs> which were like just becoming things near like the tail end of his uh career Oh man, yeah, that's <laughs> and I'm incredibly curious. Yeah, you're going to have to share that shit with me. <laughs> but anyway, let's uh let's dive in. So uh the the first game that I want to talk about and this 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 doesn't go super deep, but it is interesting. Uh is a game that I bring up not infrequently. It's one of my favorite games ever made. It's Paper Mario and the Thousand Year Door for the Nintendo GameCube. Uh maybe someday if Nintendo loves me. Maybe we'll get a Switch version. Come Maybe. On, Just re-release GameCube Just virtual games. Console, virtual console. That's they're all we so, need, baby. They're so expensive. <laughs> I'll pay for Game, it. GameCube games on disc are so prohibitively expensive. Yeah. It, mm. I, will, I will spend $30 a pop to be able to play my old GameCube games on the Nintendo Switch. I am irate that that is not a thing yet. <laughs> but Paper Mario and the Thousand Year Door is a game within a book that contains a stage play <laughs> and that sounds bonkers and it's not like none of this is super prevalent in the narrative like none of this has narrative implications for the game mm -hmm. but the first paper mario for the nintendo 64 opens with like a book opening up and you getting sort of a prologue thing and it's broken up into chapters. And so there's, there's this sort of idea of like, this is a story about yeah. these characters that you are playing through as though you were reading a book. Paper Mario and the thousand year door doesn't open with like a book opening, but it's still divided up into chapters. You still get kind of like page turn effects for some of the transitions between scenes. They're still clearly leaning into this idea of like, it's Paper Mario. It's on paper. It's in a book. But then there's also an element when you enter combat in Paper Mario and the Thousand Year Door. It's it's sort of a side-scrolling two-and-a-half-dimensional two game. You explore this world. When you enter combat, you get, you know, the Pokemon Final Fantasy blur effect wipe away to a combat screen. 
And the combat screen is a stage, complete with an audience of NPCs watching the fight happen. And how well you do, because the trying to trying to make sure I, I cover my bases of what you need to know. Paper Mario and the Thousand Year Door operates on a turn-based combat system, very much like you know your traditional RPG, but with timing-based kind of QTE quick time event style button presses. So, like, you select, I want to jump on the Goomba, and then Mario runs over and jumps. And if you hit the A button at the right time, he will, you know, do a double jump on it, and, like, you'll get more damage out of it. And you can yep. kind of block with the same idea of, like, hitting the hitting a button at the right time to reduce the damage, the damage that comes in. Yeah. If you hit the B button instead of the A button, and the B button has a tighter window in which that will function... Rather than doing a nice button press, you will get a stylish button press, I and that not, will attract I forgot more. About that. Yeah, it'll attract more people to the audience, and the number of people in the audience is important because doing moves they cause well causes them to cheer, which in in turn fuel, refuels your star points, which is what you use for your special abilities. So there's this like whole kind of construction of like. The better you perform in these fights, the more resources you have to continue to perform well. And by the same token, if you miss those button inputs, people will leave the audience, which makes it more challenging because you don't have the as, as easy a supply of star points to refuel your special meters. And as the game goes on and as you complete more fights and as you do more stylish things and more nice things with those button presses you become a bigger star and so the the stage that you're fighting on for those combat encounters gets bigger and nicer and adds like uplighting and the the capacity <laughs> of the crowd gets larger so that you can then again have a better time and easier time refilling your special meter and it's it's kind of wild <laughs> like it's like a it's a really cool system that I don't know why it exists but I'm happy it's there yeah it uh, because the, the, it doesn't really play into the narrative at all. There's not, like, there's no third act twist of, like, haha, you've been trapped in my snow globe of performance, Mario. There's, like, it doesn't play into the narrative, but it does... I think that what it what they're using it for is this very Brechtian idea of, like, making you pay attention and making you mm-hmm. be cognizant of all of the different design elements going on in what is on the surface a very simple turn-based combat system mm-hmm. like it's not super deep there's not a ton of you don't have persona or shin megami tensei or pokemon style type type advantages or disadvantages you don't have a ton of like different enemy attack types there's a handful but it's it's on the surface a very simple straightforward combat system which i think is mm-hmm. a, a big benefit for the game paper mario yeah. is one of my favorite games, and also a game that's easy enough that it was able to become one of my favorite games when I was, like, 10. Right. And that's a very good thing, but there is a surprising amount of, like, depth there if you want it to be. Now that you're saying this, this makes a lot of sense, because I feel like one of my biggest pet peeves about people who complain about RPGs and turn-based combat systems is that, like, the argument usually boils down to... It's 
well, I mean, RPGs are by nature repetitive, but, you know, on top of that, there's this idea that, like, I can't do well in the game unless I level up and grind, when, you know, there's a lot of engaging systems under the hood that, you know, if you strategize and if you, you don't even really have to, like, power uh, power game or min-max or anything, like, it, there's just, like, if you know what you're doing, you'll be able to excel even if you're under leveled or whatever mm-hmm. and i think what what what's interesting about this where you know there this this idea of like people are judging your performance um and you know there's something exciting about performing to this fictional audience yeah and uh finding more creative ways and you know the game in turn rewards you with the resources to continue playing creatively yeah and i i think that what helps with that is all of these things making turning this idea of like good performance equals resource return and giving that a personification as the crowd that you're playing to i think it just it makes explicit and it makes visible these mechanics that another rpg might like hide in the code or put yeah. in a menu or like give you a tooltip at the beginning and then you know you just have to remember it Right, right. And I think that that's getting to this idea of, like, make the artifice visible, invite the audience to see what's going on under the hood, and, like, engage with it and observe it and think about it in a way that isn't, like, just the purview of the experts. Because that was another thing that Brecht really disliked, is this idea of, like, theater is just an allusion to the masses, only, like, the select few people that, like, study it can really break down all of the interesting things that are happening in a traditional, like, realist production. Mm-hmm. To, you know, to a layman, it's just like, I could see what was going on. Only the lighting technicians in the audience are going to be like, hmm, they used a really interesting filter on that light. I, and I remember so, I was talking to Roman after one Kenyan show, uh, talking about a, a friend from college who's also on the unexplored places, which Listen we'll talk about it, yes. in a little bit. Um, but uh, I, I was, I, I remember like I was at a party with them and uh, they were talking about the lighting of one show. And I was like, Oh, I, I never really noticed anything that bad with it. And they just kind of like, they gave me like a knowing smirk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's that, that old chestnut that like, you o- you only notice the lighting in a show if it's really cool or really bad. Yeah, yeah. Unless you know what you're looking at. Exactly. And Brecht didn't like that, so this idea of, like, you know, Brecht would not like your Final Fantasies that have all of, like, the mechanical things hidden away in menus, and, like, you have to put in all this legwork to figure out what's going on under the hood. Right. But yeah, that's that's really all I had for Paper Mario. Like I said, it doesn't go particularly deep, and again, I'm not trying to say that, like, Paper Mario's crowd-cheering combat system is on the level of, like, your more hardcore JRPGs. I but mean, it's I, I think it definitely has a place. Yeah, and it's an interesting approach to the genre that I, I would love to see more games kind of do what it did and look at how you can break apart and present differently these kind of typically hidden systems yeah. in these combat systems. Yeah. Also, Paper Mario is just like one of the most charming game systems or uh, game series ever made. Once once Nintendo finally gets off their ass and gives us a virtual console, get it. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you to buy it because that disc is probably like $200 at this point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's funny that you mention uh, the, uh, like this conversation about uh, 
Paper Mario and the Thousand Year Door got me thinking about RPGs because they are, you know, such an abstraction of reality to begin with in that combat is, you know, a turn-based affair. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't have a lot to say about it, uh, which is why I was going to avoid talking about it, but it, it kind of makes me think of uh, Vagrant Story. Uh, okay. Because the main character... One of Dylan's favorite games of all time. It's true, it's true. It, it, it's such a tiny detail, but one of the... Uh, in in the early game, one of the characters kind of approaches the main character, uh, Ashley Riot. He's, he's a knight who's kind of like a, a medieval secret agent uh, for Parliament. And at, uh, he, he talks to Ashley and basically says, like, you know, the way you fight, it's so detached from reality. You you fight as though you have no soul. Like, you, you, you think about the action you need to take to succeed in combat, and then you do it. Um, <laughs> and that, that in itself feels very Brechtian. Like, yeah. that is a very, like, how an actor would perform in a, Bre- like, Brechtian play. But also, uh, it's kind of fourth wall breaking in that... It's a turn-based combat system. Yeah, it's a turn-based combat system. You, the player, are literally pausing the game to decide what action Ashley should take, and then he will read your input and then do whatever it is without question. That's really cool. That's all I have to say on Vagrant Story, though. Uh, That's fair. (laughs) It's It's an interesting note. I enjoy that idea of, like, this Brechtian approach to acting. Dylan Dylan texted me last night as he was reading. He was just like, Bertolt Brecht, if you are not acting like this is the first time you've read the script, you've failed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, a, a lot of uh, what Brecht valued in performance was this idea that, like, you know, even though the actor has done this and rehearsed it, he should be acting to the audience as if he has he is reading this part for the first time. And that all of the initial reactions that this character had to the character they are playing should be visible to the audience. I guess a funny example for me is like when I did a first reading for a for a play I was in recently, I was playing this like scumbag adulterer uh, who is the worst. Um, and throughout the first reading, I had like vocal objections to the things I had to do. Oh my god! <laughs> Where I'm like, oh, this guy is. This is the Woody Allen play I was telling you oh, about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, where I, I was playing a character not unlike uh, playwright and actor Woody Allen. <laughs> uh, and, oh, yeah, no, it was just uncomfortable. And I feel like in a Brechtian performance, I would have the freedom to be like, I do not, this is disgusting. <laughs> and, like, then the audience as active participants would be able to make the <laughs> be able to say, like yes ask, ask the question of like yes or i mean like if you're if if you're woody allen you could be like hmm i don't know really i think I guess I'm okay. now you have to keep this in <laughs> <laughs> i do um, not endorse woody allen i i think he has a lot of problems and i'll leave it there <laughs> that's fair i i agree with you <laughs> <laughs> i feel like that's not a controversial take but <laughs> and yet <laughs> God, council culture. Uh. Um, anyway, <laughs> I could be canceled next, says man with two Twitter followers. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's slide into the playbill so we can talk about what else we've got going on, and then we'll come back and we'll dive into some some more interesting 
things that games do with these Brechtian ideas. We're in the playbill now. I oh, inserted a transition moments ago. Ooh, Bertolt Ooh. Brecht would be proud. Oh, man. Oh. That... <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say that that music it's so good uh we'll talk about that music later though mm-hmm. um I, this anyway is yes let's uh dude do you remember macross i do <laughs> is a show that i am on with our friend coop and uh it is it is a uh, podcast where i i talk with him and we watch the show super dimensional fortress macross and we talk about that show it's it's themes uh, the events of it, we we analyze characters, we do all that good stuff. Um, and if you like eighty science fiction anime, you should check that out at Dude You Remember Macross. That is Dude as in Dude Where's My Car. Um, and uh, you can find us on Anchor.fm/slash Dude You Remember. We are also on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. Hell yeah! You should also check out The Unexplored Places, an actual play podcast featuring me, Dylan Sometimes, and then our uh, a bunch of our friends from school, including their G- the, the GM, Christine. It is a currently uh, heading into season two. I believe the day after this episode drops, there uh, that uh, episode two of season two will launch. It's a sci-fi space opera set in the game system Scum and Villainy about a whole bunch of uh, varyingly competent space criminals. Um, <laughs> it's been a ton of fun to work on. Uh, I, having been able to listen back now, it's been super fun listening back to all the dumb jokes we make. And uh, How the, many Star Wars jokes have you guys made? Uh, not a ton after the character building episode. Okay, um, surprising. <laughs> there's at least one coming up in either this next episode or episode three. I can I can remember offhand. And it kind of sucks because I was really looking forward to playing the drinking game. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's a super fun show. Uh, the amount of world building that Christine has done is incredible. Uh, my favorite example of this from the the world building and character creation episode we did is they devised a world that is like a a rotationally locked moon that is always day on one end and always night on the other so the only habitable area is in like the band of twilight at the vertical equator that's so yeah which is the coolest shit like the coolest sci-fi shit ever i should ask Um, them if it's based on shots (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like i said that last week and i i know it's like uh dylan this is a dumb bit it's not a bit anymore i'm just genuinely <laughs> curious that's fair uh but it's a great show and you can find them at unexploredcast.libsyn.com or on twitter at unexploredcast. you should also check out uh the podcast the god's head incidental which just dropped their first episode last week i am in that as turvis a just anxiety-riddled landlord. Um, It was a ton of fun to record. We recorded it, like, God, almost at least a year ago at this point, which is wild, but it's finally out. Uh, I'm really proud of the work that I did in it. There's a ton of other incredibly talented people who worked on this show, uh, and you can find that on Twitter at God's Head Pod. Other than that, we need to thank the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network. There's a ton of great shows there. Uh, 
examining video games from a whole bunch of different angles, uh, from like current events and news to people hanging out and talking about what they're playing to people talking about the actual development side. Uh, you can find all of those shows retweeted constantly at HPVG Pod Network on Twitter. And thank you, as always, to our patrons at patreon.com slash bsgpod. It is your fault that this show is still happening. Uh, <laughs> uh, we appreciate the support that we get there so much. Thanks to you, we're not losing money on things like website hosting fees and all of the other kind of overhead that goes into running this thing. And if you like what we do and want to help us do it better and do it more and get, you know, new equipment and all that kind of more time to do things like that, patreon.com slash bsgpod is the way to do that. That is all I have. Dylan, is there anything else you want to throw out into the universe? No, I am good. All right, then let's leave the playbill. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline and slide back into Bertolt Brecht phrasing that came out of my mouth. I know, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to live with the consequences of my actions. Oh, Mr. Landings. <laughs> mm. Uh <laughs> hey Dylan. Yeah. Tell me about Metal Gear. All right. Okay. I should have went with okay. Damn it. Okay. I, I missed okay. a really easy snake reference. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Anywho, uh, there's no take backsies. There, there could be. I edit this show. <laughs> but now this is funnier, so let's keep going. Yeah, I know. That's why I said it. Anyway. Uh, okay. Metal Gear Solid is a game series that would take too long to explain in detail. So Honestly, you if know... you want to know more about Metal Gear Solid, listen to any given episode in our backlog. It comes up a lot because it's it, a very cool game to look at from a variety of angles. It's it's true. And this is and every time I mention it, I'm like, okay, we gotta talk about Brecht eventually. <laughs> so here we are. Um yeah, so Metal Gear Solid is a game ostensibly about a soldier who's a super soldier, who's like the product of a genetic experiment, and he's he's called upon multiple times to take down a, nuke, a walking bipedal nuclear doomsday weapon known as Metal Gear. That is the simplest way for me to explain the plot of the first game and maybe the fourth game. It's been a while. Uh, but yeah, that's that's Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. What Metal Gear Solid does that is interesting and I think makes it stand out amongst a lot of other things it does, but okay, uh, <laughs> is that it... it loves breaking the fourth wall um in fact uh as like i think brecht would put it like metal gear solid doesn't even believe there was a fourth wall to begin with uh yeah and <laughs> yeah yeah and i i feel like do i want to start with psychomantis yeah let's start with psychomantis i feel like that's the easiest uh thing to so psychomantis is a character in metal gear solid he's a boss fight uh and you know he is most famous for reading your memory card and telling the player 
uh, some of the other Konami games they played if you're playing the PS1 version, or some Konami and Nintendo games you're playing if you're playing the GameCube remake. And that's already pretty alienating, I think, uh, that the game is acknowledging Super Mario Sunshine. (laughs) Yeah, and I I think that that brings up another kind of element that we didn't really get into is there's like there's different degrees to which properties can engage with these these brechtian ideas uh something like paper mario that's like part a core fundamental part of the game it's always there with metal gear it's always there to a certain degree but they 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 lean more into like those kind of shock you out of the comfort moments yes. like that yeah. like there are long stretches of metal gear solid where it will it plays like a game and then something like the Psycho Mantis fight will happen that just, like, is there to kind of shock you out of the comfort that you've developed yeah. with the media. There, There's an incredible amount of world building in Metal Gear Solid that, like, makes it feel like a real cohesive world. And then, like, you know, at the same time, the characters will be like, if you need to use the computer, you have to press the circle button. Or, like, you know, like, to crawl <laughs> yeah. on the floor. And, like... You know, that's, like, standard video game stuff that you can kind of write out of your head, but it still has this extra layer of weirdness when, like, you have it's professional voice actors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, the characters, in the same sentence where they're like, we have to destroy Metal Gear because nuclear war is bad, they'll also go, destroy Metal Gear, press the square button. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> game over. <laughs> game over, you know, like... Uh, so anyway, with with Psycho Mantis, like this is the most direct. Like you play other video games, I am talking to the other person holding the controller, and you know, <laughs> uh, let's. What? I'm sorry, I'm just reminded of there's one of my favorite dumb bits of like kind of meta Brechtian con- construction uh, comes from the the Fahrenheit 451 film from 1966. Uh, which features as part of the world building, they're introducing this idea of if you haven't read, if you don't know what Fahrenheit 451 is, go read a fucking book. I don't have time to break down this this <laughs> entire. Ironically enough, that is also the theme of Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, honestly, but uh, <laughs> they're introducing like this futuristic world, this futuristic technology, and part of it is like TV that you can interact with. And the way that this film from 1966 develops this is there's this woman sitting in front of, like, what is essentially, like, a full wall projection of this soap opera. And this guy on the screen is, like, a doctor, and he's talking to a patient. He's like, it seems to me like this is going to be a fatal a fatal disease. And then he turns very slowly to face the camera and points out at the woman watching and says, what do you think, Linda? <laughs> and it's... <laughs> The, the funniest <laughs> delivery I've ever heard in my life. How Brechtian. It's incredible. What do you think, Linda? Oh my god. It's that's... so... Anyway, I'm sorry. Oh, that's... Oh. It's so good. Oh, that makes me so mad. <laughs> alright, alright, I'm recovering. <laughs> um, yes. Psychomantis. Uh, he's talking to the... the the person controlling uh, Snake. And I, I think what's interesting about that is that this whole Psychomantis arc, let's let's just call it an arc, because Psychomantis himself is controlling a puppet uh, at various intervals of his boss fight. He, he takes control of Solid Snake, the main character's love interest, Meryl, um, and makes her fight Snake for him in the same way that you are controlling Snake and making him fight for you. 
to get to the end of the game. Oh, that's so cool. And yeah, it's something I didn't think about until last night, honestly. In addition to that, the only way you can beat Psychomantis, because Psychomantis can also read your inputs as the player. And so the only way to trick Psychomantis and, and, you know, beat him is to unplug the first controller, uh, to unplug the controller and put it into the second port. Um, and he doesn't realize that you've done that until after you, you beat It's so beat cool. Him. It's so rad. And it, Does... it's something that's acknowledged explicitly, like, in the cutscene, like, in the story. Does Snake react to the, the, the quotes about the other games that you're playing that you've been playing? Nope. Nope, okay. it's entirely for you. That's cool. It it really just kind of makes you think about Snake, like, is Snake like is Snake an extension of you? Is Snake like, you know, blah 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 blah. Uh I, I guess I'll segue into my next point is that like Snake is built up to be this ideal soldier, but when we get to this point in the game, they really start to build the idea that like snake is empty inside and like yeah. everything he does is like to kind of like he says it's the only time he feels alive uh when, when he's like in combat i.e when the player is controlling him yeah which really like kind of sells the idea that like solid snake himself the action hero is in empty vessel yeah and i think that really it's, doesn't it's... yeah sorry, sorry go ahead i was just gonna it's... say <laughs> You go. I'm editing this out uh, so we sound like we're professional. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no. I think we should keep that. That's cute. <laughs> anyway, uh, Solid Snake is a vessel for the player. Um, and it's almost played like the characters react to this and they're cognizant of this. And they are looking down on Snake and that like how empty of a vessel he is. Like it's the, the way Snake's character arc kind of goes in this game. It's like this is a thing that he chooses he chooses to be this empty vessel for the player and it it's really kind of breaking down the action hero archetype he is because when we're first introduced to snake we're known that he's this legendary super soldier and he's done all these amazing things and uh you know like when another character sees him for the first time he's like this guy's like something out of one of my japanese animes <laughs> uh and you oh, know like gone. Oh, Otacon. Uh And, yeah, it all kind of builds up to this idea, like, but do you want to be that guy? Do you, the player, want to be that guy? And should Snake, the character, want to be that guy? Yeah, and that's, um, and, that's kind of what oh, I was going to get at, is, like, this this moment, particularly of, like, Psychomantis and this, this introduction of, like, this awareness of you as the player and this acknowledgement of Snake as your puppet... It's not just for the shock value, it also ties into, like, the theming of the game. Metal Gear Solid, as you have explained it to me before, Dylan, is a game that's kind of interested in looking at agency. Yes. And looking at how, like, agency is accepted or is engaged with. And so this moment is used to kind of shock you out of your complacence, but also to bring that idea kind of to the forefront without having to, like, make the subtext text. Yeah. And so this all this all comes to a head, at least I think. Uh, there there is one. Okay, there there's a couple moments that uh, happen uh, when you get to near the end of the game. Uh, there's a you're fighting Metal Gear Rex. It's piloted by your evil twin brother. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he, uh, it's a very hard boss fight, especially like like you know 
I've played the game enough that it's it's not that much of an issue for me. But like, <laughs> no, like you will die on this unless like you are somehow like really You're good a real at alpha Gasol. gamer like Dylan Gregory. No, I mean like I'm being self deprecating. I know. Story, I understand. But, uh, but uh, so you're fighting the final boss, and you know it is expected that you will die a lot. It is a very hard boss fight, and every time you get halfway through the boss, uh, one of your old war buddies comes in and basically saves you, and he distracts he distracts the uh, main villain piloting the Metal Gear, and there is an unskippable cutscene. It is like one of two, I think, uh, two unskippable cutscenes in the game. Where you are in Snake's perspective, and you are in control of him, and you are in the first-person view where, while the main villain's distracted, you can shoot and kill him, but you will also, as collateral, kill your old war buddy um, in the process. And so, your war buddy's giving, like, this this dying speech about, like, you know, it's just, it's it's heightened melodrama, but it's, you know, you're you're in the moment, so... It's really, really nice. Um, and the first time you might be like, wow, those were his dying words. That was really cool. But by the time you you do this boss fight, you know, 15 times or whatever, you're going to get really sick of that speech. <laughs> and you're going to start mashing the, the square button to try to fire the missile. But Snake won't let you. Snake uh, will say, it's no good. I can't do it. And you cannot skip the cutscene. You cannot end the cutscene prematurely by firing the missile. Uh, you are stuck in Snake's body as he refuses to let you control him. That's so cool. Much like Snake has been letting you kind of a body stuck in your control for the rest of the game. Exactly. Oh, that's so cool. It's, yeah, uh, it's it's probably my favorite moment in the game. Uh, The other cutscene that you absolutely cannot skip, and they actually call back to this in Rising, um, is... Basically, after you destroy the Metal Gear, Snake is knocked unconscious by, like, a, a blast. And when he wakes up, uh, the his evil twin brother is monologuing to him about how, you know, they're, they're both the devil and worse than hell. The specific thing I want to point out is that he talks about how him and Snake were designed to be this way. And how there is a killer inside you. And that... Uh, this is actually kind of a callback to something Psychomantis says, where he he talks about how like Snake is actually much worse than him, and that compared to Snake, like Psychomantis is actually a pretty decent guy. <laughs> and so th- there's this idea that like you are doing reprehensible acts uh, through Snake, and Snake has just allowed it to happen. And you know, yeah. you're doing it for fun. You're doing it for fun. Um, <laughs> Undertale actually kind of taps into this idea as well. Uh, I feel like I might have talked about that in a previous episode or Chris edited out. But yeah, it's just this moment of like drawing a clear line of separation between you, the the player, and Snake, the person you're controlling. And how by, by controlling these characters, you are actively making their lives worse and making them less than human. You are dehumanizing them. Yeah. And so... You know, Snake's entire character arc is learning to reject that and learning to find something he cares about and standing on his own two feet and actually living his own life. Oh, God, I just realized something that I wanted to talk about that I completely forgot about. And I know we're uh, already hitting an hour with some time (laughs) to edit out. 
I wanted to talk about Metal Gear Solid 2 as well, because that's equally important to... <laughs> <sighs> okay. Okay. I'll, I'll try to do this quick. Um, another cool thing that Metal Gear Solid does is that it frequently uses FMV footage. Um, yep. And it'll, yep. just, it'll just intercut the gameplay with that. FM- FMV, for you at home, stands for full motion video, uh, and is a term used to describe using, you know, video of actual real world like actors and things in a studio and like camera sometimes, roll. sometimes it's computer animated but in Metal Gear Solid's case it is very definitively live action stock footage yeah and you know that that in itself is alienating because like you know it's it's seeing the stage lights it's it's realizing it's drawing a clear line between like this is something real that is tangibly happening in your world, and this is something that we created for the game world. Yeah. Um, and usually these FMVs come up when talking about real-world concepts like nuclear waste disposal and how it's actually kind of a fucking joke, and you should be concerned about that. Um, the the privatization and uh, the commodification of war machines... Um, and arms manufacturers and like how it's all just like an eco- economics game uh nano machines son actually no they don't really talk about nano machines all that much <laughs> in in the first metal gear solid like they are there as like a plot device for like you know in lore stuff but it's never used to like explain like higher concept yeah, things no, I like got in you. four uh yeah no i'm whenever people talk about nano machines i have to say it wasn't always about that no i just i just love that line with all of my heart it's a really good line i love that boss fight with all of my heart that boss fight just takes the piss out of everything i about the series that annoyed me as it went on Um, (laughs) yeah which is so good it's so good metal gear rising is a farce and it is the also one of the best stories in that series but anyway uh let's talk about the main character of metal gear rising in the previous game he was in, Metal Gear Solid 2. Uh, so Metal Gear Solid 2 is a direct sequel to Metal Gear Solid 1. Um, and I talked about this two episodes ago, where you're controlling Raiden, and, you know, I, I proposed the idea that, like, even when you're controlling a snake, you are playing as Raiden playing a snake. The interesting thing Metal Gear Solid 2 does is that if, if we accept that even when you're playing a snake, you're not actually playing a snake, that allows there to be a consistency with snake choosing his own agency or at the very least that this is an alternate version alternate fictional version of snake this this is getting too heady i'll I'll (laughs) move away from that what i like about this is that as you're controlling raiden you know at first he's all ready to do the mission and then like weird things keep happening uh his girlfriend is a his girlfriend is like one of the operatives on the mission and like that is that takes him out of it and he's like this shouldn't be happening what the hell are you doing here um and you know he's seeing things that like in Metal Gear Solid 1 like Snake just kind of takes for granted or with like skepticism like he reacts to Psychomantis's actual possessing another human body he just kind of says like he ignores that <laughs> he completely <laughs> ignores that and like when Psychomantis's invisibility is revealed to be like uh, the use of a science fiction device snake doesn't comment on the fact that he possessed someone and says optic camouflage huh hope that's not (laughs) your only trick and it's it's just like it's even even when metal gear solid one breaks your immersion it somehow misdirects you into like becoming re-immersed raiden doesn't do that like there's a character named fortune who like 
her body deflects bullets, and there's also a fucking vampire, appropriately named Vamp, and Raiden's like, what the fuck is going on? This is like a nightmare. What? Like, this This shouldn't be happening. And he's constantly questioning the state of what's going on. There's there's a line in the very late game after, like, you know, the fourth wall gets fully blown up. Yeah. And the, uh, the colonel, the, your operative, both in the first game and the second game, are, he's telling you, like, to turn the game off and that the mission was a failure and that you need to turn the game off right now. And Raiden has a line where he's like, I don't think I've actually ever met you face-to-face, not once. And, you know, on the one hand, that's, like, a cool acknowledgement of that in-universe. But also, you the Colonel has no in-game model. Huh. Like, it, it, especially, in the, especially in Metal Gear Solid 1, like, the Colonel's just a JPEG. Holy shit. <laughs> that's rad as hell. Yeah, like, you never physically see you know, physically within the game world, see this character. And so Raiden is a character who almost like if he is performing the role of Solid Snake or Snake, he is constantly questioning that super soldier role and is not content with it and lets the player, the audience, know that at every step of the way. And I think that's a huge reason why so many people don't like Raiden is because he does not become complicit in being this super soldier. Huh. Yeah, it's it's really... Like, if we look at Metal Gear Solid 1 and, like, if we, we take that character arc that I suggested about Snake as, you know, maybe not what Kojima intended, but, like, the general pathos of that is, Raiden is a character who is constantly looking and criticizing and breaking down the role that he's been assigned. That's To the point really where, cool. like, the player is no longer allowed their escapism. Raiden's the double down. I love that. That's really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny that, like, players didn't like Raiden until he became a cyborg ninja. And the plot of Metal Gear Rising is Raiden being like, I don't care about anything. Killing's just fun. Like, completely reducing him to the player avatar that people always wanted. (laughs) And, like, not really showing that as a good thing. Yeah. Story-wise. The... The game ends on a very open note uh, where, you know, like Raiden just disappears and you're like, is he, did did he just become like a a mass murderer? Like, is he just off killing people now? Yep. Like Metal Metal Gear Rising Rising is a great game. (laughs) Yeah. Metal Gear Rising like kind of takes like the idea that like people who play the Metal Gear games don't think about the, I guess the more heady, I don't want to say intellectual because that makes me sound like a pretentious asshole. No, I got Um, you. But, like, you know, like, the the more high-concept ideas and, like, they just want a game where, you know, they're playing as an action movie hero. And they take that idea and they turn it into a farce where, like, now the characters have lost all personality and substance and they become tools of justice. And, you know, like, like they they, they made it stupid. But, like... Jetstreamsamsmile.gif. Jet yeah, oh my god, like, the whole arc in Metal Gear Rising is about how Jetstream Sam wants Raiden to stop caring about the story and stop caring caring about uh, any higher ideas or goals or really striving to be anything other than a killing machine. God, it's Metal so Gear good. Rising's smarter than, you, than people think it is. Metal Gear Rising is better than your favorite game. <laughs> <laughs> 
Metal Gear Solid Three is that is that what I? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna die on that hill. Okay, all right. <laughs> I I have a couple friends I need to show this episode to when it drops. <laughs> <laughs> um. I think that'll probably do us. There's there's a lot of other stuff we could talk about with regards to Brecht. Other things that were on my mind, like the way that the uh, the death mechanic in something like Dark Souls or Hollow Knight is built into the narrative, or the increase in games also like Dark Souls or Hollow Knight of like games where the lore and the story kind of has to be pieced together by you. That idea of like putting the the legwork of figuring out the narrative into your hands as a player is kind of a Brechtian concept. Mm-hmm. Brecht is cool. There's a I'm I'm sure that we would we we might come back and do another kind of Brecht centric episode at some point. Or if not Brecht, I feel like just modern theater in general. Yeah. Um, like Plus now the... that we now that we've now that we've had this this conversation, we can always refer back to this and and bring this kind of idea up in future episodes, which will be useful. Yeah. Yeah. We have that glossary on our site, right? We do. I'm gonna. I'm okay. gonna have to update that pretty heavily. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, I think that'll probably that'll probably do it for us. I we've been going for a good long time. I had this is fucking cool. I love shit like this. Yeah, yeah. I was afraid, like, oh, I only have Metal Gear. I don't think I can talk about that for that long. And well, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> As, like it says on the tin, here we are. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, I hope that you enjoyed this as much as we did. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Backstage Gaming. Uh, we appreciate you being here. We hope that you enjoyed it. If the, if this is interesting to you, uh, definitely check out some of Bertolt Brecht's writings. A lot of them, I assume some of them are public domain by now. God, one would hope. If there's any games that this has made you think about, any moments in some games that you like that, are, that you're like, huh, that did something like that, let us know about it. Tell, uh, message us on Twitter. Leave comments on social media like just you know tell us tell us about the things that this made you think about social media you mean like the facebook that we have yeah and the twitter where our handle is at bsg underscore cast exactly you know what i heard chris i heard you can also find us on youtube you can i've been bad about updating the youtube recently but i'm gonna fix that okay but you can also find us at our website bsgpod.com where you've got that uh, glossary of terms that Dylan mentioned. You can also find a contact form. You can find some info about the two of us. There's lots of cool stuff on there. And you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, most notably. If you like what we're doing, please think about leaving a rating and review on the Apple Podcast service, because that's really going to help us just climb that ladder, baby. Um, Also... Yeah, to help us climb the ladder, use the hashtag BSGPod. Anyway, moving on, uh, huge, huge thanks to our... That was the one thing I forgot to throw No, you in. are all good. Uh... <laughs> Huge, huge thanks to our friend Brennan French for the key art that he has provided us with. If you dig his stuff, you should check him out at brennan-french.squarespace.com. That is b-r-e-n-n-e-n-french.squarespace.com. You can also find him on instagram.com slash brennanfrencharts. You should also show some love to our friend BioQuery. He is the musician and producer behind our theme song, Dot Sound Radio Volume 1 Instrumentality. If you like what you hear on our show, you should check out his music, and you can do that by searching for BioQuery on Spotify. That's B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y. Or by heading to soundcloud.com slash BioQuery. Thanks again to the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network. Go show some of the other shows uh, on the network some love. If you like our show, you'll probably like some of theirs, and you can find all of those being constantly retweeted at HPVG Pod Network on Twitter. 
And thank you once again to our patrons at patreon.com slash bsgpod. Without you, this wouldn't be happening. So once again, I'd like to repeat, this is your fault. And if you like what we're doing and want it to be your fault too, check out patreon.com slash bsgpod. That is all I've got for this week. Anything else for the good of the order, Dylan? I really wanted to come up with a one-liner, but I don't have one. But like, there's got to be a Brecht pun somewhere. That's all that... (laughs) Bertoltia. Uh, that the Breakfast Club. <laughs> <laughs> the theme music's already playing. I'm fading this out. Bye. Good. Bye.